let's let's start. Any no sorry, no prayer requests. Continued okay. recovery for Karen. Sorry? Continued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. What was the reading this morning? Um, for the, the Isaiah reading. Thank you for the um, gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself at Mass this morning, for your words to us, for your presence through the day. And now for this time, this work that we have been doing for so many years together is coming to an end, and um, I'm grateful and glad that we can be um, finishing it um, with you speaking to us and bringing this all of a point. Um, um, truly, in a real sense, that everything's been pointing to you and the great work of the Spirit to bring people together. And it's truly amazing to me that we are still doing this together. It's a great tribute to everybody involved. So um, I'm grateful. I think I'm speaking for everybody that um, we're all grateful for the work that we've done. I ask a blessing on all of us as we enter this last stage because we're going to deal um, take up more directly your words. Um, the course has been called Literature's Prophecy, but it's prophecy on the other side, on this side of um, of divine prophecy. So I ask for a special spirit, um, a greater care on the part of all of us, a greater openness to your words, to learn. Um, our whole church history stands behind these Gospels and protective. Um, we know from history how easy it is for people to misread from within the church and from outside of it. So help us to take care and I ask for a, a, a special grace of, of joy and gratitude and gladness, uh, particularly in this season of Advent. Um, um, Bless all of us in our efforts to discipline ourselves, to put ourselves away, all in a spirit of joy, being thankful. You died. You took your divine nature to a cross. Help us all to die. Um, um, defending you, um, living you in everything we do. Um, we offer our thanks for Karen's recovery um, she looks really good, even if she's not walking, wherever you are, Karen. And um, particularly for all, all of those who've been struggling with medical difficulties, because there's a good number of people. So um, grant your protection, surround us with your protection. Um, breathe into our hearts your light, your love. Help us to carry you to everything we do. Uh, particularly with each other, in our families, and here in our group. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to do the... Um, the, f the fifth section of um, Bert Norton. And I'm going to leave it with no comments at all, except except to say this. 
um, in one sense it focuses what's been underlying each of the sections so far. So it's going to be a little bit more explicit and it's going to go to the still point in the word. What's been um, behind everything from the beginning. And let me just leave it at that okay, and let it speak for itself. The fifth section of <coughs> Bert Norton. Words move, music moves only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. Words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. Shrieking voices, scolding, mocking, or merely chattering always assail them. The word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation, the crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. The detail of the pattern is movement, as in the figure of the ten stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being, sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage, quick now, here, now, always, ridiculous, the way sad time, stretching before and after. That brings all of Burt Norton to its end. It, it ties up so beautifully with the beginning. Okay, um, next week we won't meet. We won't meet again until the first week of January. Um, and since we won't meet, I want to just take a second and wish you all a, a blessed holiday. I hope somehow you managed to step back from all the bustle and find a quiet and prepare for Christ. Um, be glad with whatever sufferings you take on yourself. Um, do it for Him. If I should have added that in our prayer, if I can add it now in my heart. Um, help us to take a joy in giving things up. Learn to do that. Um, I just sent a, a brief outline um, by email to all of you, so you should have a very brief outline. I've got one that's more detailed. I've, I've got one that's worked out in, you know me, in a lot of detail. I'll put it online after class so you can see. I'm, I'm not sure how much we'll cover or how far we'll get, but at least you'll have those notes. Um, and they're fairly thorough. Um, so for example, in the notes, in the outline, I, 
Um, I mentioned the prophecies that take place in the first seven books. I'm going to try to cover seven chapters. Sorry, not seven books, first seven chapters. I'm going to try to cover six or seven chapters every week. So that should take us through Matthew. Um, I won't be surprised, you probably won't be either, if we go five weeks. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to hold it to that, because I think after this first class, we should be able to go through the text a little bit more directly. Um, I, I won't have to go over these notes. I will review these notes next week when we start, because I think they're really important. But the general comments that I'll make tonight, um, I won't make in the um, subsequent weeks. So um, we should be able to do Matthew in four or five weeks. But have a good, have a good Christmas, a blessed Christmas, all of you guys. Okay. Okay. Last week, um, we wrestled with two concerns. Um, one of them was this question of what would be the practical implications of doing away with our dogmas or sacraments. And I had the feeling that that was something of a struggle. And so at the end, I asked everybody to line up the three major religions of the world and look at their beliefs and deal with the question, um, what would it be like for us, for any human being to be, to grow up Islamic, Jewish, or Christian? Because they all believe differently. They all have different beliefs, dogmas, and they're not the same. So even if you were to line them up on a stage, all three men would look like men. But I'm trusting that all of us would say, their manner, their spirit, the way they lived, what they did, what they would bring to their actions would differ in some recognizable way. Our beliefs affect us. So the first concern we had was, um, what, would, what would it mean to give up any of the major dogmas in our belief? The second was the, um, this question that was raised from the readings last week of doing everything we can to be blameless. We're called, Christ, Christ himself says, we're called to be perfect, like the Father is perfect. Those are his words to us. We're asked to be perfect. And I thought Fred's description was one most of us share. I certainly do. You know, think about um, the last reckoning and answering Christ. We've already had an example in our literature because Dante had to face Beatrice, who was a Christ bearer. She brought him to her at the top of Purgatory. And you remember that he was scolded uh, mercilessly. He passed, <laughs> he passed out. He was so shaken by um, what she said to him. Um, what would it be like? Um, so I, I just, for a very brief moment, I want to take up those two concerns and let anybody you know, raise questions on them. I don't want to take any any real time because I want to get to the gospel, but but I'd like to bring those two lines of questioning to a, to a close. So let me take the first one first. Um, what would it mean to do away with any of the central dogmas of our church? 
Set somebody who's Islamic, who's Jewish or Christian next to each other. They all have beliefs. What difference w would it make to anybody holding to the traditional dogmas of the, I'm going to limit it, to the Catholic Church? Because we believe in the sacraments in ways in which a lot of the Protestant world does not. We believe in a pope, we give a central place to the pope, and we give a central place to Mary. Um, the, the unity of the church under the pope is probably the most important reason for the divisions between us and the Protestant world by and large. What would happen if we gave up any of those? And just to try to put this in a larger context, um, um, Suzanne wrote down a couple of lines from last week after to, to keep in mind while we wrestle with this question. Clearly Christ does not have the Catholic Church in his mind when he makes those words. The, the, the Church is founding with him at that time. But we have him saying, many shall come from the East and the West. He says the centurion um, in the faith that he showed when he asked him to heal his servant, that he, he'd not seen anybody with that kind of faith in Israel. Repeatedly, he, in the Samaritan, the, the Samaritan woman, repeatedly he comes across people who are not the chosen people who have a faith he would expect from the chosen people that they don't have. So repeatedly, people from outside that world into which he was born, um, people are saved. They're healed and their sins are forgiven. The thief on the cross was forgiven that night. He didn't say, forgive me. He spoke to the other thief and Christ said, you'll be in heaven tonight. Um, and Fred raised that, or um, called to mind that statement that so often is a, um, a bone of contention between people. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I said at the end of our class last week, he did not say, nobody comes to me unless you believe in me. He said, nobody comes to the Father except through me. So what does that mean, except through me? So any last thoughts on that first question, and then we'll take up this second one on... <laughs> how we'll face our reckoning when any of us get there. First one first. Any last thoughts on what would it mean to give up any of our deepest beliefs, our dogmas? Tracy, you got a thought. You were smiling. I should have gone to Mark because he was smiling too, but Well, I, our last class made me think a lot, and I, I've been trying to remember like these little epiphanies that I had, but if I don't write them down, I don't remember them. <laughs> <laughs> a good friend of mine, who I dearly loved, he was the head of the art department, a little bit older than I was, got to a point in his life, I've not quite done it, but I should, he, he had one of those little uh, spiral tablets that he would put in his, seriously, and he would write, you know, because often we have them, and I'm the same way. If I don't get it, this black hole in the center of my hole, my soul gets everything. Um, <clears throat> Doc, did you have something? No? 
Mark, did you have any thoughts that you'd like to offer here? It's interesting because I, I, you know, if you take any of them away, you destroy the church in every shape, in every way, shape, and form. And I, and I, and there's no. I can't sit there and think, oh, if this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this. Happened. It's like no, the whole thing's just gone. It's like a nuclear bomb. It's gone. All right? There's a large crater. Leads straight to hell. Have a nice day. Right? <laughs> There's another side of that, Mark, besides the naked one. Straight to heaven, too. You don't don't leave that well, out. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Right? God, Mark. Um, but, oh, save me, somebody, please. No, I, I, I'm a very old school Catholic. This whole hold hands and everybody praise God and be nice to each other crap is, just makes me sick. Anything post-Vatican II is disgusting. Um, look what the Pope's trying to do to the Latin Mass. Mark, stay with our questions. Answer the question. What are the... Fill it out, can well, you? Actually, actually, you know what? No, that is extremely relevant. You're okay. destroying. You're destroying the Make it concrete. Make it concrete. Forever. Okay. For at least eighteen hundred years. At least since Polycarp. Okay. And you take a look. Last week, the Pope said that he wants to get rid of celebration of six of the seven sacraments in Latin. Okay. Let's take everything that ties us to Christ, or at least in Latin, back to Polycarp, who was John's disciple. I mean, you can't get much closer than that. And let's throw it all out. Mike, well, make, no, no, that's not that important. Mark, make this as concrete as you can, if you can get specific with any of this. Because you're dealing with such broad generalities right now. Can you make it concrete? Yeah, well, I, I, I can't give you anything relatively specific because it is so broad. It is just absolutely devastating to me. In every way, shape, and form. There is no... Um, if you take away any of the dogmas, any of the sacraments that it's all based in, you, you know, it's you can't take... Just, let's just take this one part of the faith away and let's see what happens, right? We watch, Look what happened with Protestantism when you started taking little things away. Fractured and fractured and fractured and fractured and fractured. We have an amazing hole in the church, right? W-H-O-L-E, right? The whole, the whole thing. And when you take one part away, like Luther did, or Calvin, or any of the other guys, it just, it just doesn't fit. So, so to take something extremely important, okay, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, you know, take any of that stuff away, and you just you completely fracture and destroy. What the would it mean? What would it mean at a practical level for the way we live our lives? That's my question. Oh, I, I, I can't speak for anybody but me. I'll believe in what the church gives, no matter what happens in, in Rome. Okay, but as far as if you take a look at Western society, you cannot make an argument for anything happening in the past two thousand years of written history that was not influenced by Christianity in one way, shape, or form, good and bad. Right. Um, the only educators generally were priests or, or you know, uh, religious people because they're the only ones who could read forever. Um, 
I, I mean, everything historical from literature. Mark, Mark, let me, let me. I've, we've got to. We don't. We. I've got to be careful of time. I mean, if you, uh, if you, if you can't bring it to a specific, let me get to somebody else because yeah, there's ahead. a there's a general truth to everything you're saying, but I'm, but I want to try to make a concrete if I can. Barbara, can you can you help us here? Well, take any a take name a dogma, and tell offer what your thoughts are and what it would mean for our individual lives for any of us, concretely at a practical level for the way we live. I'm not sure that I can do that concretely. All I can say is, for for the dogma of. Um, Christ being God and man. If that isn't true, then his sacrifice of his life for us, his his human life for us, doesn't make much sense. It, it isn't enough to redeem us. And if I'm not redeemed, then my compass is gone. My The foundation of my life is gone because I don't know Okay, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to fix this? What's going to make me whole? And I don't have anything. That's all I got. <laughs> That's good. That's Tracy. It looked to me. It looked to me like you were shaking your head a second ago. Did you uh, have something to come back to you? No, just understanding what people are saying. You know, like getting what people are saying. But I mean, I guess practically, if you don't have I mean, in my day-to-day -day life, the only way that I can deal with people is because God asked me to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, it gives me the strength and the compassion and the patience and the um, humility to deal with the craziness that people bring every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. because otherwise, I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a real practical level. Yeah. I think if you... Sorry, can you, can you speak up, Doc? If you take away the... Can you hear Doc? Can, if you take away the Trinity, then you take away our social nature, because we're made in the image of God. If, if he's not a social God, a Trinitarian God, then that's not part of us. And... That leaves us isolated, certainly from each other, and I think also from God. God. He becomes—he's yeah. not—he's not close anymore. I mean, I live my life believing God is—is is not, you know, a hundred light years away from us. He's—he's he's here um, because Christ was here. And if you take that away, then God is a hundred light years away from us because he's so much more than we are. Um, and it also takes away our ability to relate to each other, just like Tracy was pointing out. And if, if we don't have a Trinitarian God, what connects us? Nothing. Um, yeah. Maybe you know, maybe like a litter of puppies. As long as they're puppies and they're together with their mother, there's some connection. Once they're out of that immediate physical connection, there is nothing. 
there, there would be nothing connecting us. We would just be isolated individuals, which to me is like hell. Yeah. Just if I could, if I could just add to that, if you take what Suzanne's saying, it, it just leaves me with a serious question, how much people live conventional lives so in a conventional marriage where you just get along, you know, um, but to actually learn to become one in the way that she's describing, particularly, I mean, her first, her first way of describing it is if, if God's solitary and in isolation, so are we. What helps us overcome that isolation? Even in a marriage, how much do we live that marriage through conventional codes or manners? Um, can we overcome those things? Can we close the distance between each other without a cross, without risking, without suffering? I mean, take the cross away so that couples are left in the isolation that Suzanne's describing. It, I, I can't see people coming together. Well, no, I, no, I don't want to say that because I've, I've, I've got to save this for a minute, but it just seems to me it's going to be much, much harder for people to finally find love in themselves the way we know it from Christ. And we, we know from our faith that's unlike anything in Judaism or Islam that our the God that we believe in so loved us, loved us in, in spite of the worst things in us. When we're going to hell, I mean put it as darkly as Mark can, when we're going to hell, that was not a reason for him to turn away and leave us there. He sent his son to die for us. I mean, to go to Barbara's point. Or, and without that, there's, there's no way of answering that original sin against him. He loved us so much that he sent his son. He knew that that son, God, infinite and divine, would go to a cross. So no other religion has a God showing us that kind of love and inviting us into it through the help of the sacraments. So for in the Eucharist, say, for example, we don't believe that it's just a, commemorate, a commemorative act. We believe that we actually take in that divine nature so that we are helped to try to love the way he did because without that help, we couldn't do it on our own. I mean, we're left in the situation Tracy was describing. I mean, the madness that we all face, we saw it in Lear, we've seen it in so many of the works that we've read together. So it would have a radical effect on our practical lives, the way we live. We take any of that away, and we're in a Jewish or Islamic world, or a secular world, without that help. Fred, you have Fred or Francis. Do you have anything to offer? Well, I, I think just to take it to a very basic, fundamental level, to me, it's all about hope. If you, if you believe that Christ was only a, a man, a prophet, like all the other prophets, and not wholly, wholly divine and wholly human and died on the cross to forgive our sins, then I'd personally be, and I think a lot of other people would be personally walking around the world just constantly piling on regret from sin and with no hope to ever be forgiven. I think in one of the classes we we kind of talked about this, maybe it was 
I can't remember which book it was now, but we sort of talked about the whole the whole concept of I don't have to be perfect. You know, I don't have to be like a saint. Oh yeah, I like just a have Thomas. To be the best the best me I can be. Yeah, I can be forgiven and I can get a fresh start and I can continue to to try to be better. But if you just believe Christ was just another human being and nothing else, which is the Muslim or Jewish belief, where's the hope? Yep. You know, where's the opportunity for forgiveness? I mean, you know, if it's just another human being tells me that God's forgiven me, I'd be kind of hard-pressed to believe it. Yeah. Um, if I can take a second, would I, I want to call? I want to wind this up here, but um, if I can take Fred's description of hope if without it because we believe that faith hope and charity are divine gifts they're graces they're supernatural graces okay as a matter of fact let me try to make this as concrete as i can because i want to i want to if i can be careful of abstractions here in king lear you all remember what a painful play it was and we talked about the Christ bearers in that play, um, people who had to bear, who came to realizations of their sins, Lear, Gloucester. Um, people had to go through a lot in order to grow. And, and as we looked at the play, we saw that the movement to the heath was really important because it took them off the circumference of that circle, Boethius' circle, closer to a still point where they had to give up power, wealth, pleasure, reputation. Those were the four main, as I recall them, from Boethius and, and eventually St. Thomas, that are the good, the temporal goods that most people seek, but they're perishable. And yet it was the appetite, the desire for those goods that drove Goneril, Reagan, um, Cornwall, and Edmund. Are you all remembering? That, that should be clear enough, right? We close enough to that play? Can I stop there? Hold on to that. At the end of the play, um, when Cornwall, or I mean uh, Reagan and Goneril, are wanting to kill each other because they want Edmund for themselves, and Edmund is using both women, and um, Edgar comes out um, to challenge him and wounds him fatally. Edmund's in his last breath. He's dying. And he hears the news that the girls had killed themselves, the sisters, out of their love of him, even, even if it was a, let's say a damnable love, a really evil love, okay? There, there's no, the, um, Gonorowak poisoned Reagan and then killed, took her own life. So the despair, the hatred, the envy is sinister. It's some, you could say it's demonic, it's certainly evil. Um, but when Edmund hears the news, suddenly he says, I pant for life, I want to do some goodness. And he says, quick, go get Cordelia and Lear. So, and critics have commented, I mean, I, I, and it's interesting, I don't, I'm not going to go into this, I'm, because it's really telling in some ways on critics. I've got one in my mind in particular who cannot make sense of that moment. Um... It seems to me what's going on in that moment is that Edmund was struck with a grace. A grace pierced his heart. 
we saw that in Dante, if you remember, at the end of, in, in the very beginning of the purgatory, when Dante's going up the, um, what is it, just the preliminary stages of purgatory. Remember, it's in the pre-purgatorial stages where people have to wait before they can begin purgation, where several of the people were only saved at the last moment. That is strictly Dante. That's strictly Catholic. Remember one of them, when he was on his way to hell, just a, a, the dark angel was coming to get him, and he mentioned the word Mary. The slightest thing Dante's showing us can save a person. If there's something there, God can work with it. So even if a man's committed evil, God loved um, David. David killed a man, um, premeditation. He cunningly planned it out. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, God loved him. Um, he punished him, but he still loved him. It seems to me one of the ways in which we can look at Edmund is that he's overcome with a moment of grace. It's inexplicable. It's mysterious. We can't account for it. St. Augustine recognizes it in his writings. He says, the mystery of this relationship between sin and grace that something, and he, he experienced it personally himself when he went into the garden. He was overcome with a moment. He could not make the decision to convert to Christianity. He could not. And then suddenly he was hit. Something outside of him affects him. And we know that's true, that very often something will happen and, and it, it may not be a, you know, a life, lightning sort of shattering bolt or but something happens. It can be subtle, it can be small, but it's important. And we know that that can happen to somebody who's Jewish and somebody who's Islamic. Even if they deny Christ, we allow for the, our church does, allow for the possibility that a grace could enter them in a moment and make for their salvation. That's our belief. So when, um, when people say, um, the only way to the Father, there's no one um, that comes to the Father except through me, what does that mean? Can we take just a moment on that? Barbara, can you, do you have any thoughts on that? It's, Fred presented it. I was really so grateful again because he, he went to a stumbling block. I mean, obviously at work he's, he's dealing with people who are non-Catholic. He's surrounded by people of different faiths and religions. And lots of people look at the Catholic Church as if it's a stumbling block, that it's in the way. If it would only get rid of these things and the things that, um, would prevent it from just merging with other religions, we'd all get along. And some of them raised that question, but when Christ says, nobody goes through the Father except through me, um, what does he mean? Barbara, can you, do you have any thoughts on that? Redemption, it doesn't mean that they have to be Catholic or they have to necessarily follow the rules. They just um, they need a connection 
to him because he is the only way to get um, beyond all the sin that there is, all the, the stuff that we don't like or we like too well and don't and wish that we didn't like. <laughs> oh, you are good. You are good. Fred, you raised the, I mean, you're the one that, that, that raised that question or, or, or offered that thought. Do you have any thoughts about it? Um, I want to wind this up here. I have to give credit to Mark because I think it was something he said that I just followed on. I think it is, it is at the heart of so many discussions between uh, Christians and non-Christians and even among Christians. I, <laughs> I, I think it you know, you, and I've been in a lot of conversations myself with, with people in small, small uh, groups of faith and, and, and such. But if I go back to some of our readings, uh, particularly some of the ones that uh, 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 Flannery O'Connor wrote, and I specifically, and I can't remember the title right this minute, but the one where the woman is in the, the doctor's waiting room. Revelation. Revelation. Yeah. And the warning in so many of the books that and, and, and short stories that we've done is the danger in rationalization <laughs> and how it can quickly mislead you. And when you you know, when you pull away from that still point or that doctrine or whatever it is that you use for the guiding post or your beliefs you quickly find yourself in trouble. And you think that when when a lot of the, you know, particularly the Gospels were written, they were written when the average education of, a, of an individual wasn't very, wasn't very great. And it's, it's hard to believe that Christ would, would, would talk with the expectation of a lot of rationalization needed to understand what he said. And so, because, you know, the people, many of the people that he was talking to were simple and uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. And he would have had to have been very straightforward in what he said in order for them to really understand it and to be able to do something with it. So when he says, no one can come to the Father except through me, I think he really meant it. And I think if you look at it from the standpoint of view of the doctrine that we talked about and who he really was holy human and holy divine and, and and what all that means in terms of how you interpret it in our doctrine I take it very seriously I, I have a hard time making an argument that says if you don't believe in Christ and who he truly was and why we have been forgiven for our sins because of who he was, I think you might have a hard time finding your way to the Father. I really do. Yeah. And I think that's what Mark was, and maybe Mark, don't let me speak for you if it's inappropriate, but I really felt like when Mark made his comments, that was where he was going. And I just felt like we shouldn't dismiss it. I think there's, I think there's something really fundamentally important about that. And I have to say, that is one thing in the Bible that I take 
fairly literal. Literally, yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Um, let me let me if I can um, pick up that comment of what you're all saying about that. Um, my understanding of it is, and I think I'm taking it, it's really interesting, I think I'm taking it literally to Fred, um, but I think it means more than just belief, it means through me, it means doing everything he asked. So fundamentally for me it means um, loving the way he did in a completely self-sacrificing way, so ultimately the way through the, to the Father by way of everything he did, particularly through the cross, is through a self-sacrificing love. It's through Him that way, that kind of love, we go to the Father. I could not agree more with you about your um, your comments about rationalizing. And let me, if I can, just pick that up for a second. Um, because it's going to go to Matthew. Um, if you look at the difference between Islam and Judaism and Christianity, they all, they all rest on the law. Decidedly, um, I don't. I don't want to go into this in any depth, but I, I think the comments we made about the law, particularly what Fred said about um, Islam, is true. That's that it's a deeply heretical belief. Um, it picks up from the Jewish law, but it makes it something other, because what was behind the Jewish law was covenants that God made with His people continuously, historically. Uh, Matthew is going to pick that up at the beginning of his gospel. So there's a long history, not just one private revelation behind all the covenants in God's ties with Israel. Clearly, when you look at the Old Testament, something's unfolding in time, and God is working with it, preparing all along for this event that's going to take place. Um, and Islam and Judaism remain there. They don't get past the law. Both, both religions deny um, the Trinity and they deny Christ's divinity. They see Christ as a prophet merely, so they, here's where I wanted to go. By denying Christ's divinity, they take away a whole world of miracles um, that are offered through Christ and our faith. So one of the fundamental differences between Islam and Juda Judaism and Christianity is the presence of a divine working itself out in our life actively. Because as I thought, particularly the way Doc said it earlier, I mean, she was, um, said it wonderfully when she said, if, if God's alone, he's not a trinitary, he's isolated, so are we. We have no way of making contact. Christ closed that gap. The separation that exists between God and man was closed only with him. And in him we've got a crucifixion. So one of the fundamental differences between Islam and Judaism is the divine nature that enters time, that a God allows himself to be killed because he loved us that much and asks us to love each other that way. That means love each other when we have no reason for doing that. I've gone over this before and before. Faith means having faith when you have no reason for having it. Hope means having hope when there's no reason for hoping. Love means loving when you have no reason. When your back is against a wall and you would like to wring your spouse's neck, that's when we are asked to love more. And it hurts when we don't want to. 
So at the center, I mean, to go literally to what Fred is saying, I, hold, I take those words absolutely literally. I'm not sure that we understand it the same way. But I, I believe that nobody goes to the Father except through Him, and through Him for me means carrying the wholeness of what He did for us that's embodied in our church. At the center of them are the sacraments and a cross. Uh, it's really interesting that in, in Matthew, what, what Christ will do is, is what's at issue between those three religions. Because one of the dangers of Islam and Judaism is because they both stand on the law, they're ready to be vindictive to get back on the basis of how well they live up to a law. And what Christ showed, and we're going to read it in Matthew tonight, he came not to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it, every iota. But he did it through a divine love. So here we are back to one of the great themes of our work, reconciling justice and mercy, law and love. That over and over again, Christ is critical of those people who want to reduce God to rationalizations. I'm just picking up Fred's work. Fred, if I, I hope I'm, I hope there's no difference here. His disciples asked for a sign just after he'd given him, and he said, <laughs> you're missing it. The, the disciples walked away when he said, unless you eat of my bread. Repeatedly he's attempting to, and, and sometimes in anger, he gets really frustrated with the disciples when they're missing it. I mean, he says, how long do I have to put up with this? You know, it's not easy because so often, I, I mean, I think Fred's right on. The grave danger for so many of us is rationalizing what we do. And it can kill our hearts. We want a sign. We want to be in control. We want everything to fit our understanding of things, not the other way around. We don't want to live in mysteries. We don't want to live in certainties. We want everything the way we want them. We want to control things, most of all, with our minds. And when we do that, it, it hurts our hearts. It keeps us from loving the way he did. So, repeatedly, what he's doing is answering the tendency in Islam and Judaism for people to become self-righteous because they're following the laws. It was that self-righteousness that he came to answer. It's going to do it at the opening of Matthew. So, it seems to me one of the fundamental differences, I mean, what, what's at the heart of our faith is the, these supernatural virtues that call us beyond ourselves. Faith, hope, charity. To have faith when we have no reason. To hope when we have no reason for hoping. And to love when all reason for loving has been taken away. That's when God went to a wall. His back was against a wall and he let it happen. He suffered that humiliation as a way of helping us to know that when we reach that point and think we can't do any more, we can. That was one of Hopkins' most famous poems. poems. No more, no more, I can't. And he goes on to say, I will, I will. Just when he said to himself, I can't do this any longer. It goes to what Tracy is saying. How many of us, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how any of us get through the world except by walls of denial unless we go to Christ. 
otherwise we live in walls of denial and we just sort of get along and you know because the world is so so maddening um, let me stop let me switch because I want to be careful um, standing blameless God Christ himself his words no one goes to the Father except through me his words be as be perfect as the Father is perfect. Those are his words. His words. He asks us to be perfect. He asks us um, um, to be spotless. That the church go to him spotless, the bride of Christ. We're all asked to go. So, um, any last thoughts on this moment when we before Christ and our knees are shaking and down on our knees and you know all that we were saying at the end of last class, what what do we do? Do we give up and say we're going to hell because I'm, we're in sin and, and just give it up? Um, Paul is asking us to be blameless and so is Christ. Paul's only following Christ. What do we do? Any Any final thoughts on that? I was reading somewhere this week about, uh, I can't remember where it was, for the of me, but it said something like, if you uh, desire to love Christ, that um, he does the rest, basically. And um, I, I was thinking about our conversation, and I was thinking about this very question, and it came to mind, you know, when he says... Um, you fed me, clothed me, visited me, I think, mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. Um, so if we are looking at Scripture, that's what he asks us to do. And um, I thought about those two things together. You know, <laughs> you desired to love me, Jesus. And out of that, these acts of love in the world. Um. And so I thought about that moment where you're standing there quaking, and if you could, if you could truly say, "I did my, you know, or I, I loved you, I, wow. you know, I desired to love you," yeah, and you meant, he knows if you mean it. So whether you failed or succeeded or whatever, it, if it's from your heart, and then it's that's what he's asking. Yeah, yeah, good for you, Tracy. Any other thoughts on that? <clears throat> Let me give one example, if I can. I want, I want to be careful of our time. I want, to, I want to get to Mark. I'm anxious to get there. and So we're going to get past discussions and look at the real thing here in a second. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Chesterton because, remember, it was his arguments at the end um, in Authority and the Adventure um, in which he's saying, you know, he wants to answer this tendency on the part of secularists to fault us for our faith in miracles. And his argument basically is, um, you can laugh at people who have faith, but but you should realize that you're not in a position to judge them. Those are his words. By the way, I I I I revised the quotes I, I sent you of a final set on Chesterton. It's just a long series of quotes that you might look at. I think it's 14 or 15 pages. So it's it's like a an abridged orthodoxy. You can just, you know, go through it at your leisure and read some of the, I think, more seminal passages and pick it up. It's, it's good to be handy. 
But in the last one, he, he's taking on those people who laugh at people who have faith and believe in miracles and those things. And he makes the point that um, you may laugh at them, but you can't judge them. If you're not in a position to believe, you don't know what they know. So he's challenging all the scientists who say this can't happen because the assumption of the sciences is there are no miracles. The supernatural is beyond our ability to know. I mean, lots of scientists are wising up on that and they know that there's something beyond science. And um, but, but it's the same thing Christ encountered over and over again. Um, wherever he found people who believed in things, he could accomplish miracles. Where they didn't, he couldn't, because their own attitude got in the way. And we talked about it last week. So often when he performed a good act, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees um, saw in his actions nothing but bad. So this whole question of belief is fundamental to our faith. Um, okay, here's my example. So here's Chesterton. Chesterton is obese. If there were an, an example of somebody who's an illustration of gluttony, it would be Chesterton. By the way, two of the great figures, two of the great heroes in my life are Chesterton and St. Thomas. And both of them were enormous men. And the woman who, who did his biography, who loved him dearly, said that he was fatally fat. Fatally. And he's dangerously overweight. Here's a man who loves orthodoxy. Orthodoxy was written, I think, about 20 years before his conversion, but he's already on the way there. He, his whole mind and heart are already there. I read that, and I think he's Catholic already. You know, whether he, um, um, His whole mind and heart are there. He is way overweight. Um, can anybody imagine him going... He's got this tremendous sense of humor. He has a profound mind. He sees things lots of people don't see. He's able to make clear lots of things that people don't see. So he has a wonderful mind. He has a wonderful heart. If he stood before Christ, would he be shaking? Because I'm assuming he's a man who knows his own faults. What I'm saying is, I think he's pretty clear-headed about that. And he continues to be joyful, grateful, glad, humorous. The church says we should never despair. Whatever we do, even in our sins, I mean we go to confession, even in our sins, we stand trusting in God, not ourselves. So how do we approach this last reckoning with our sins? Self-righteously, because we're good? Or sad, because we're bad? Okay. I think that... France, other, oh, sorry. Wait. The other question is, like, afraid. Not sad or self-righteous. I don't know that any... But afraid. That would be the question I would ponder. Yeah. I don't have an answer. <laughs> well, it is, here, let me go to that. because We talked about quaking in our knees. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> but related to sin specifically, and that's what I was saying last week, that for, for to believe that we're forgiven 
and you don't want to wallow around in it for the rest of your life. You have to forgive yourself too. That's part of the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, obviously, trust. Obviously, this childlike desire to love a person who you know, if you love him, um, that it opens up your life to mystery and you know crosses and you know. So it's it is a decision. I think that you make. I don't know. No, you do know, or you wouldn't have just said beautifully what you did, Tracy. It um, is there a difference between the in the Bible? It said um, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. I think that's Old Testament. Beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Is there? there wait, 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 wait. Oh. Is there? Sorry, I want because I want you to. I'm giving you the question. Is there a difference between a servile fear and a fraternal or filial fear? Son to father, brother to brother, filial, fraternal. Is there a difference between a servile fear and a filial or fraternal fear? If so, what's the difference? Because I think you're right. I mean, if we take Bible series, it says fear is not a bad thing. Fearing God is actually... A good thing, but it should we fear him in a servile manner? What's the difference between a servile fear and a filial fear or a fraternal fear? Is there a difference or not? Uh, you know, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, fear of God is awe of God, right? I mean, you read that. So, um, and then. Um, filial fear, I would say, just my gut reaction is um, that you want to please, you want to not please them. You want to, there's a relationship there that you, that's based on respect and, and love. And so you ultimately know that it's for your good, especially a parent, maybe. And so you feel, you maybe part of the fear is that you feel badly because you, you know, you failed to, I don't know, do the right thing. <laughs> um, but like a, a servile fear is more like, you know, um, uh, St. Therese in her A Story of a Soul, she talks about, or maybe the introduction, I can't remember. Um, is it Manichaeism that she was kind of suffering under? Um, scruples? Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and it seems like, no, it wasn't her in there. It was, um, oh... A priest, something I was reading, talking about um, this image of Jesus is like this ogre, you know, like it's out to get you. Like you do this wrong thing, you're done, you know, like I got you, I caught you. And that's more of a servile fear, I would I would character, you know, I would describe it that way versus a filial where it's like a relationship and you're trying to be, it's like Doc was talking about last week, you know, you're trying to be blameless. Um, we can't be. And you, you know that there's, Another image that I've read is like the sense when you go running to your father and you throw yourselves in his arms and you say, I did this thing, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and immediately you're forgiven. So that's filial fear. You know that you're wrong, but you also know that you'll be forgiven, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tracy, bless your soul. Yes, yes. Mark, do you have any thoughts to add to this question about 
um, blameless or, no, or, or, or wait, the, wait, wait, or the difference between servile and a filial fear? You probably don't want to hear my thoughts on this, Bob. I do. I do. Come on. Uh, how does one get into heaven? And I, I think we all try. We all think we might have an idea, but nobody knows but God in the end, right? Anybody who thinks they know, you might as well just stamp welcome to hell on your forehead and start walking. Um, <laughs> because you don't, right? Um, <laughs> the, the best we can do is hope for his grace and do the best we can to live as good a life as we see that we can do. And in the end, you get what you get. And I really honestly believe that it's a lot harder than people want to imagine to get there. I don't think it's all, hey, everybody, welcome on in, right? That was the old, what, Gnostic Gospel of St. Peter? Uh, that, no, okay, that's her, that's her, but, it, but, you know, he was like, hey, Peter, don't tell anybody, but everybody gets in in the end, right? It was like, no, right. that, that's, that's yeah, not right. how it works, right? Right, right, right. You know, um, you know, your healthy, you know, there's always, you know, you know, fear the Lord. And it is um, a fear of what could happen if you get it wrong, right? Um, but it's also have respect um, and be penitent, be reverent. Um, treat it as the most important thing there is. You know, the glass you don't want to drop. The, you know, the picture's got to be just right on the wall. You know, whatever that is, right? Yeah, whatever, yeah. right? It's got to be the most important thing. That's above family. It's above children. That's above anything we know in our small little portion of the universe. Whatever we think we know, and we're Americans, and damn it, we think we know everything, right? Um, but all that's nothing. Um, yeah. And I think it's going to be a huge shock for most everybody. And then there are wait, wait, wait. I just, Mark, I just want you to know um, you're absolutely wrong again. <laughs> Ab absolutely wrong again because I liked your answer. <laughs> Mark, what to do with you? That was a wonderful answer, and I liked it. There are going to be a lot of people who are shocked, and there will be some people like maybe Mark, who will be shocked that they get in. Oh, I'll be stunned. <laughs> you know, one of the... But if, I, if I do, he's going to put me next to Faulkner. That's the thing. <laughs> you and Karen. You, where is Karen here? You and Karen. Who's next to who? Faulkner. Oh, Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, and what a joy that will be for both of you. Yeah, what the the interesting thing here, I mean, and I, well, here I'm going to be anybody else, um, Barbara or Fred or Francis, do you guys want to Francis, add anything here? Francis oh. had something. Francis, did you have something? Come on, Doc is saying you had something. I trust her on this. Oh, oh. no, Fred has always talked about he wants a checklist. Where's the checklist? 
so I can check off all the stuff to get in. <laughs> the checklist. <laughs> that's, the guy, that's the scientist or the Baptist in you, Fred. Where's the checklist? I couldn't wait for Mark to give me the checklist. <laughs> Actually, your wife probably has it, and you probably don't want to read it. Yeah, yeah, God, I mean, that that is really a good answer. I, I guess one thought that comes to mind is, you know, we've talked about particularly, you know, and in, in some of the things that Christ did, but we, you know, we've talked about it in a number of reasons, where you, you have a clash, a full-on clash of, you know, different emotions that, you know, that you, you can... You can like be 100% angry, but you're 100% love, kind of thing. And to me, that's that's what I think it's going to be. You know, I, you know, you, you ask about uh, filial versus um, servile, uh, servile. And to me, servile is almost like a a fear of punishment. Um, filial is like a a fear of disappointment, you know, in, in a healthy parent-child relationship, the child is, you know, more concerned about disappointing the parents that they love. Um, in a servile relationship, you're you're worried about, you know, somebody punishing you for what you what you did wrong. I, I think you're going to feel it all. You know, you're going to feel. You're going to feel the fear of awe, you know, a, a you know, a, a, a tremendous element of joy. I mean, it was it was really true. All of these things that we believed were were true. Christ really is the Son of God, and you're going to be you're going to have servile fear because you're wondering, did I really do? Did I really check everything off the list? And and you're going to have the fear of disappointment. You know, did I really live my life the way he wanted me to live it? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've been in situations in life where I think we probably all have, where you've got like a, a rash of emotions all happening at once. And, and part of dealing with the situation is, is working your way through all those different emotions. And I, I can't think of anything that could possibly happen to us beyond the second coming where you just have more emotions than you're going to know what to do with. And I think it's going to be hard to stand up with all that going on, quite frankly. <laughs> um, it will be for me. Let me just I know. Say. I know. Um, you get a thousand years in purgatory, I'm going to be thrilled. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I, I remember when so we were I mean, doing... At I'm, least I made it that far, yeah. you know. It's a home stretch. When, when we were doing pur or Dante with... Uh, Saint to identify with that guy, you know, the, what do you have a thousand? Stasius, yeah, fifteen, sixteen hundred years, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be right there with that guy. I'm, yeah, I yeah. It's really funny because when we were doing um, Dante with Elizabeth Ann Seton, and we came to the Stasius episode and figured out, calculated how many years he's on purgatory, and one of the women who's whom I really in, enjoy tremendously, she's just a good, good mind. But she expressed a shock that anybody could be on purgatory for sixteen hundred years, and my thought was, I would glad, I would be glad if it twenty five. I mean, whatever it would be, I would be glad to be there. Um, 
I'll sign up for that right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, Fred, you can't. No, that, that checklist doesn't. Make, for the last ten minutes, if you've been listening, <laughs> let me let me just offer this thought, if I can. Anybody can jump in um, to to close this because I want to get to Matthew. One of the great paradoxes or tensions when I think about the saints that I admire, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, Paul, Catherine, Sienna, I mean, um, Paul, tremendously, um, um, Joseph. I, it's hard for me to think of um, St. Thomas more going to his death and awaiting it because he, he knew he was... He, he gave his life to God and he trusted that God would know that. So, what, what, here, let me, one of the differences I think between servile fear and filial or fraternal fear is that in servile fear, your first concern is for yourself. That you're far more concerned about losing something. It's a self-centered fear. Filial fear is fear of God. You know, you love him enough that, I mean, as you all um, expressed it, is your love of him is so great, and if you know he's awful, it's natural to fear that, to feel a fear in the presence of something that great. So it's hard for me to picture anybody coming before God and not being on his knees, not in, not in a servile fear, but in reverence, in awe. You know. Anyway, when I think about the Last Reckoning, I, I, I hold two things together. It goes to Chesterton that seem to me to be opposites. So while all of us are afraid, we've not done enough, we can't do enough, it's one of the wounds we're left with Christ because he did everything and we, we try and can't and fail. We go at that, but we also go, I think, I think that's what Paul meant and what Christ, this is where I'm going, what Christ said last week in the reading. Stand up straight when that moment comes. Stand up straight, hold your face, be not afraid. Christ himself said, be not afraid. That somehow we carry that contradiction. That if, if we can be too darn... Chesterton's danger... I mean, the church is... Everything about the church is aware of excesses taking us too far one way or another. The, the great task is to go to those extremes and hold them on at the same time in whatever proportion in a moment because that proportion can change. I mean, as, as Fred described a minute ago, when you've got a rash of emotions trying to work your way through them. But the danger is being too dark, too glib, too light, you know. Or going to pink. Or, yeah, right, going to pink. Thanks, Doc. But the interesting thing about most saints is they go facing a death believing so completely in Christ that they're less afraid of it than most of us. So that it seems to me it's important to keep in mind that if we, if we carry too great a fear, or it can be a despair. That we've got our focus too much on ourselves too darkly. We're not trusting Christ enough. So the, the tension that I'm trying to get at here is the knee shaking, the sense of awe and the proper fear of God, and a trust in Him that's greater than any trust in ourselves. We go believing in that, because if we don't, I don't see how we can stand up straight when that's exactly what Christ asks us to do. That was the reading last week. So holding on to those two things, the not letting ourselves get in the way 
of believing in him. So the guy on the cross who's dying, Christ says to him, this night um, you will be with me in paradise. That somehow without being arrogant or self-righteous, we, we are asked to believe, completely believe in him, to trust in him so much that we will put that fear away, that we will go before him with that kind of love. I think that's the love the church calls us to, completely to get rid of ourselves in a cross. What comes out on the other side of that cross is, I think the person Christ is describing when he says, when that moment comes, when the world is, be not a stand unafraid, stand straight, not shaking, because our belief is in him, not us. Our concern for our own failures is, is not as great as our love of him. I think Tracy's been sort of describing that all night. I'm going to leave it. Any last thoughts? Anybody want to add anything before we put our literature and orthodoxy away? But I can't believe this. I feel a little bit shaky coming to the end of all this. I don't know what I'm going to do Monday nights without you guys around. You notice I'm drinking more wine tonight. No last thoughts? Okay. Let's turn to Matthew. This is going to be interesting. Um, what I'd like to do tonight is offer a couple of general observations or reflections on background materials. Um, and offer, ask a number of cautions of all of us, myself, you. And then what I'd like to do is look to the four Gospels briefly for a minute and then more specifically focus on Matthew. So that's my plan tonight. And I, I know from the time that we're not going to get very far. That's okay. That's okay. Um, a couple of background um, observations. Um, this is going to be interesting because I'm really coming to a point that I've been skirting for six years, six or seven years, however long we've been together. If any of you remember back that far, when we get, began with the Iliad, God, I can't believe this, when we began with the Iliad, I remember giving you an outline, a historical outline, showing you the what I call the, the prophetic line of development, the correspondence between divine prophecy and natural prophecy, the prophetic poets, and how they lined up, and how they actually converged at certain points in amazing ways. Um, and I tried to make a distinction between divine prophecy, in which God is speaking directly to us through the prophets, and what I would call a form of inspiration, prophetic inspiration, that the really great poets have had intimations of Christ all along. I've tried to make that point from our very beginning with the Iliad. The Iliad was um, 1,200 years off. The Trojan War was 1,200 years off from Christ. So Christ couldn't be farther away. He's 800 years off from when um, Homer commits a diverse 
orally. So Christ is nowhere on the horizon. And yet there are amazing ways in which those epic heroes, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, give intimations. Um, You'll never be who you are until you accept your own death and your own faults. That's Achilles. You'll never be you'll never be able to make a marriage what it could be unless you see the archetypes, the underlying reality of things. But the ultimate aim is a marriage because without a marriage, civilization doesn't continue. That's the Odyssey. The Aeneid, there is a community, a body that we were meant to have together. Whatever our racial differences, ethnic differences cannot keep us apart. That collective body was Rome. It's an earthly image of the New Jerusalem. It's a city struggling to bring people together. That's our church. So the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid were prophetic in a natural way. What they, what they show us is that there's something in us that gives us intimations of Christ, even if he's not here. It's natural. He's, he's of our nature. If you thought about it, it can't be any other way. He made us. The Imago Dei, the um, um, the image of Christ, the you know the what's the the anima Christiana, the image of Christ and the soul. Every one of us is made in the image of Christ. So for them to have prophetic intimations shouldn't surprise us. What would be surprising is that they didn't. If they were great poets, what makes them great is precisely that. How many secular Critics will see that? Practically none. Or I don't know of any. So right from the beginning, we've been dealing with these two lines of prophetic inspiration that line up, even though there's a radical difference. Okay. Now, one of the most important things that, that I'd like to put out at the beginning is this, that prophecy divine prophecy, not natural, the world that we've been in for so long, these great poets, God, I just, I feel like, how you guys, I mean, it's, do you guys not just struggle to hold yourself right and not, Fred, collapse on your knees when you think about what we've been, Billy Budd, Achilles, Thomas More, Thomas Beckett, Ishmael, Ike, I mean, go where you will, um, that there are these extraordinary intimations of this great nature that human beings have, Dante, um, that, that man created something so extraordinary, and he's so extraordinary with his free will that he can turn himself into a monster. He can become the worst of worst people. Scripture is different because it comes directly from God. So in Scripture, we're hearing directly from him. The whole purpose of Scripture, as St. Thomas puts it, is we need it because there are some things that we need for our salvation that we can't get on our own from anything we do. Not even the, the, the great pagan writers, Homer, Virgil, okay? God gives us Scripture because it's essential for our, our salvation. If we were left with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we'd still be left in this world with intimations of something more. But we couldn't get there. So Islam, 
Judaism on its own cannot open those doors. It's another way of just putting the only way to the Father is through me. Um, but but we've been having these intimations of something Christ-like in the world all along. I mean, Christ 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 knew this fullness. That's I'm assuming that's why the Father loved us because he made he made humans. This great glory and the modern the modern views just so demean it. They so shrink a sense of who we are. The Protestant view makes us depraved. The secular view makes us nothing. The Catholic view says we are extraordinary. But we've been wounded badly, and because of that wound, we can do terrible, evil things. Okay. But the important point I want to make here is that. Um, it's prophecy, it's from God, and an essential quality for entering into that prophecy is belief. I just want to set that out. If you believe in your parents, you're more likely to follow them. Long before you ever understand them, you're going to do what they say. If you're three years old and your dad says, don't go out in the street, you believe him. Thank God, because if you didn't, your life would be over. And trusting everybody knows that. So belief is like a prelude. It's a precondition for understanding. We knew that from the scriptures as well, right? Wherever Christ went and he was greeted with disbelief, he could do nothing. The doors were closed. Chesterton closes his orthodoxy with that argument. You may laugh at people who believe... If you laugh at a drunk, laugh, laugh at a peasant woman who has a vision, but don't judge her because you, you won't know unless you step into that condition. He uses the example of anger. If when you're angry you see red and you laugh at him, you say, you don't you see red? You wouldn't know unless you really got angry. And if you got angry, you'd know exactly what the guy's talking about. So to criticize somebody when you stand outside of that experience is stupid. He says it's arguing in a circle. People do that all the time. He says, you're back to the beginning of orthodoxy. You're arguing in a circle. You're only saying that miracles can't exist because you start with the assumption that miracles don't exist. So when a peasant says, I, I had a miracle, you're going to disbelieve them. I hope that's clear. They're in a circular, they're, they're locked because they start that way. The only way you can find out is if you share that belief with that person. And everything about your presumptions won't allow you to do that. That's the whole point, or is one of the major points of orthodoxy. Let me stop on that. Is everybody clear on that? Tracy, you've got a question. Uh, let's see. I, well, I'm not following you. Okay, what can I do here? Entirely, I know. <laughs> if a peasant, if you're a scientist and you don't believe in a miracle, and a peasant says, I experienced a miracle, you're a scientist who doesn't believe in them, you're going to laugh at her. Because you start with a presumption that miracles don't exist. The only way, the only way you can, Chesterton's may, you may laugh at her, but you can't judge her. The only way you'll ever know is if you step into her belief. Because until that happens, you'll never know what a miracle is. He uses the example of anger and drunkenness and, you know, whatever condition. Um, you won't know. And 
most of what Christ, what the Bible shows us backs that up. Wherever Christ meets disbelief, he can't do anything. And one of the saddest things, at least for me as I read the Bible, it's so often true that people who are not Jewish, the centurion, the Roman centurion, the Samaritan woman, people whom he didn't expect to have any belief, believed in him. He's showing religious beliefs won't help. The Sadducees, Pharisees had them. Everything he did, they saw as bad. They, they were so negative in everything they saw with their eyes. They made no place for everything that was wonderful. So the only way into that is through belief. You have to start with it. How do you stop that from being like whatever you believe is? Does that make sense? So one way to say what you're saying is that if you don't believe in miracles or you didn't believe in Christ, then he had no, he couldn't do anything. If you don't believe in miracles, then they don't exist. Yeah. If you do, they do. How do you... That's a really good question. If anybody, I've, I've got an, anybody want to jump in here? Chester did himself answered at the end when he said, at the very end when he said, I, I can only give you a reason that there's a rational, I'm a rationalist. He says, I, I want to find a rational support for the things that I believe in, even though he's, you know, gone to fairyland. And, because he said, it's because the non-believer and I believe the same thing, look at exactly the same thing, except his reasons for disbelieving are different from mine. Because I look at the same thing and I see something differently from him. And he said, I look at it on the basis, this is his answer, and it's my own. It's on the basis of evidence. So that if you piled up all the evidence, the evidence would support the existence of miracles. Lots of things happen that science can't explain. And if on the basis of scientific premises, scientists deny it, they're only showing how close-minded they are. So his belief, his belief, at least as he does it, and I think for most of us, has the support of evidence. And I think that's one of the reasons that the, that the Catholic Church stands out from the whole Protestant world, because it doesn't degrade reason. It tries to do everything it can to bring faith and reason together. In the Protestant world, reason is depraved. Unless everything's transformed by a grace, the natural order is ruined. It's corrupted. That's not a Catholic position. Mark, go ahead. You had a... Two, two things. I think a lot of people who believe, who don't believe in miracles per se, that are quote-unquote scientists, it's not that they do or don't believe in miracles. It's that they just think science hasn't solved it yet. Because for thousands of years, right, we thought the Earth was the center of the world. And it wasn't. Right? So somebody came up and said, oh, it's not. Oh, that was Galileo. And what did the Catholic Church do to him? Well, they didn't treat him too well. Matter of fact, they didn't, what, till the late 1800s is when the Catholic Church acknowledged that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe? I mean, so there's a, there's a little bit of historical background as to why people don't trust the Church necessarily when it comes to miracles. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily that they don't believe it, that miracles are possible. It's that they just, they're not explainable yet. And I don't know if that's the same thing in your mind or not. Because, I mean, I, I, mean I, I truly believe in miracles, but it's, you know, I don't ever see anybody just, oh, 
you know, you make these statements like, oh, they don't believe in miracles, these scientists. And I'm like, I've never met anybody like that. Wow. They say, well, it yeah. can't be explained yet. Yeah. But it's not like, a, oh, you silly little man, you believe in, in miracles or something. I don't, you know, I've never seen that. So. Yeah, I have, Mark, and it's, it's, um, it's supported by God, um, boundless documents. I mean, Nobel Prize winners, I mean, I've read them. But most of them, I mean, I, and that a while ago I said, and I and I believe it's true. I mean, a, a, a good a good scientist to me, a good scientist would make room in his thinking for something he can't explain yet. So, I think most really good scientists, the really brilliant ones, make a place for God and miracles. But lots, and that's that's just it's it's supported by volumes of. Of testimonies of scientists speaking on it, a, a, a good majority of them are monists. They believe that nothing, nothing outside of matter exists. That's simply a starting point. It's a premise. It's a belief, and it's on the basis of that that they explain everything else. So, um, just in terms of pure reasoning or thinking, there's a contradiction between a position that says only physical and matter exists and a position that there is a spiritual world that doesn't depend on matter. God, there's nothing material in God. Christ was miraculous in the fact that he took on a body, a divine nature took on. The spirit has nothing of body. Um, so there are basic contradictions between the two worlds. It's on that basis that they deny miracles because that opens up a whole world beyond their understanding. Um, it's interesting for me to... to to be aware, I'm only aware, I mean I don't read in it deeply, but I'm aware that more and more scientists are um, becoming more open um, to a world outside of, um, a non-material world outside of the material world as we know it. Um, so, it's a, um, St. Augustine said, and I think truly, that um, Scripture is the Word of God. If you approach it not believing in God, you, you may be shocked, you may, you may discover things. But there's a good chance you'll close down or you'll read it differently because lots of people who read the Bible, and I'm coming to that in a minute, I mean, this just shows you why I'm being as guarded as I am about a non-Christian world. Um, a precondition of reading anything, according to St. Augustine, Augustine, St. Thomas would have agreed, the Church would agree, is that um, to read something well, we have to begin open and in love. If we don't bring a spirit of charity to that thing, whatever it is, let it be poetry, let it be Faulkner, if you don't bring a spirit of openness to that, you won't, you won't get much out of it. The fullness of whatever's there will miss you. You, you would hope that kids would get that in kindergarten because, I mean, so if I hear our kids complaining about their kids' experiences in schools, I mean, you, you call yourself old school, Mark. My response is no. Um, stop feeling sorry for your kids. Ask them to be open, to learn to get as much good as they can because they're going to go through life and they're going to meet awful teachers a lot and they're going to meet awful business if we just go through it with a black-white wall, we're shutting down something. So St. Augustine's response was, if we don't bring a charity to the way we see, we will miss a lot. That's Christ. That's our church. 
remember the condition of purgatory for Donnie was pride, envy, um, wrath, was a blindness. That the spiritual sins blind us, prevent us from seeing what's there, the good that's there. That's why Boethius is so important. There is no bad fortune. Do we have eyes to see that? Or do we let negative things, get a black-white mindset, get in the way? So a precondition of reading well is an openness or a belief or a love. And St. Augustine argues it's only when you can approach Scripture in that way that you'll reach its deepest truths. Okay? Now, one of the interesting things that's happened in modernity, I mean, once again, it's an advent of the sciences, is that Scripture, which is treated as the Word of God, is brought under a category of earthly, worldly things. So it's treated the way the science treats anything else as something to be approached with certain assumptions, certain preconditions. So the fundamental schools that were at work reading scripture in the 19th century were critical, historical, linguistic, archaeological. Those are the fundamental ways of approaching scripture. Most of them came out of Germany, out of the northern world. Highly critical, highly intellectual, but also often reductive. So they explained the miracles, here it is again, Mark, they explained miracles away. One of the results of that, one of the results of that is this, that biblical scholars, after examining scripture, concluded that because of the inconsistencies between the four Gospels and the fact that there are elements that contradict each other, they can't be treated reliably. So to what the church passed on as, as tradition authority, if you could put it that way, they denied. So there have been schools of thought, I, I can't, I, a C school, a G school, I can't remember them, that have taken the inconsistencies and refer to them. And it's on the basis of that that lots of modern scholars look at the scripture as something not to be taken literally. So the miracles are explained away, that they're the results of these men, um, and they, they've also concluded that the, the writers are not John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you know, they're other writers. They were anonymous writers who came in and took those names because of traditions. So there are lots of assertions about the Bible on the basis of biblical scholarship in the last hundred years that has... Um, have, um, have darkened the view of readers, who've made them more skeptical, who approach the Bible, treating miracles um, in a skeptical way. I know that from first-hand experience, and I'm not talking about class or with friends, at teaching at a, at a Catholic, I don't want to go into personal things, but I, I know of people who have been in religious studies. I mean, I was shocked when I first, I was absolutely shocked, just a little bit devastated. I was so upset. I didn't, I didn't I didn't anticipate, I didn't know about it, and then it hit me when I experienced it, and I, I was stunned. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There are biblical scholars who explain away the miracles. The, the, the intellectual part of the Anglican Church is famous for that. Chesterton is going up against um, 
Bishop Ang, the, the, the bishop of the Archdiocese of uh, Canterbury, who, who all, most of whom believe in evolution and believe that miracles are, don't exist, that they're rationalizations of people who were simply not well-educated enough, learned and backwards. And that's why the, the fight has, has been brought to such a pitch in our age. It's why Moby, if you go back to our reading of Moby Dick, remember I said then that what was happening in the 19th century was this conflict between two ways of reading the world. Ahab is in the middle of that world, caught by it. So, so, much, so much of what goes on with biblical scholarship today is very skeptical and reductive. It explains miracles away. It says you, you can't explain, you can't look at Christ feeding the, um, the 5,000 literally that you have to understand that there were probably people around bringing their lunches and feeding, that that miracle did not play, take place. We have to read the resurrection, the crucifixion differently. I'm not exaggerating these points. I'm, I want to say this going into this because it's important for you to understand what's really going on today and, and what we're dealing with in the Bible. So, most of the approaches to the Bible were historical, linguistic, archaeological, psychological. More and more increasingly in our age, they become literary. You may hear that as a surprise for me. I mean, I, I, you know that I did not want to go to the Bible for most of this class because I wanted to stay with the literature. Here we are. It's not uncommon today to find people approaching the, the Bible the way you approach literature. They talk about its various genres, the genres that make it up. Style, perspective, audience. They'll even approach it aesthetically. Francis introduced the word beauty in Latin. We look at it in terms of beauty. So there's a tendency in the modern world to look at it, it as a piece of literature. Lots of people teach the Bible as literature. I'm getting a little bit nervous right now because of the title of our course, but... Um, okay. I think all of these ways have a legitimate claim. All of them have something to offer us in the way that we read the Bible. But I think it's absolutely essential that we keep in mind a couple of things. So here's my offerings from the best of my wisdom over my years. It's the Word of God. It's not a work of literature. It's the Word of God. The basis of that Word is the Word, Christ. So that we understand Bible as an expression of God speaking the Word, Christ, through the prophets. It has to be read that way. I would insist on that as much as I would insist on the fact that Homer wrote the Iliad or Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, or Boethius, that we learn to see a work on its own terms, whatever it is, a play, a poem, a thesis, a scientific treatise. We have to understand it as it is. Whether we like it or not, whether the grammar is easy for us or not, whether it's Faulkner or Hemingway, we have to learn to see what's there. That's straight St. Thomas. So the Bible is the Word of God. We have to read it in that spirit. 
he, as God, he could make use of all modes. Poetic, parable, history. We find them all in the Bible. We can't reduce them to one. We have to learn to see what's there. I would say there are three, I'm going to name three principles which for me are essential. Even though I've said be on guard. The critical, historical, the linguistic, the, you know, all of those. The literary. I would say be on guard. And I'm saying that as earnestly as I can because I, I'm taking Christ here. Be aware of false prophets. Be aware of um, wolves in sheep clothing. A lot of people come from within the church. Christ asks us to be on guard. Mark presents himself as being really hard-nosed. Um, he doesn't know how much he and I are like at one end. Um, um, anyway, here's the three um, ways that I would encourage you to keep in mind or give maybe a greater importance than all the other while recognizing there's a place for all of them. The first is historical. It's, I believe it's absolutely crucial to see the historical character of the Bible. You cannot read the Gospels and understand them without going to the Old Testament because Christ is the fulfillment of everything that happened there. To go to the Gospels and read them without that is to absolutely miss Him. God started something with Abraham. Matthew is going to make this absolutely clear if we ever get to him. Matthew is going to make that absolutely clear. We cannot undermine or, or diminish the historical importance of Scripture. God is working through time. All the covenants that he established show he is attempting to bring something to fruition. The end of that whole Jewish tradition with all the covenants was um, this God born of a virgin. He's bringing to fulfillment everything that happened in the law. It's absolutely crucial to keep that historical perspective in mind. Number one. Number two, it's the principle that you've heard me espouse through every work we've ever read. We will never understand a whole till we get to it. If we're reading for parts, the likelihood is we'll meet, misread. We have to learn to see the parts in terms of the whole. So our judgment should be provisional, tentative, until we get to that whole. Because until we do, we're likely to misread. So if you take a part of Scripture out of context of that whole, there's a good chance you'll misread it. You've been seeing this all along. You know that if you go back and read Boethius, if you go back and read Merchant of Venice, if you go back and read Yield, you're going to see far more on your second reading than you did on your first. You know that. You go back and read any of the works, Brothers Karamazov, passages are going to jump out at you with meaning that had no meaning for you at all the first time. Because you couldn't see how the whole was inherent, vested in that little thing, that part. It's true of the Bible. There's a whole from the beginning to Revelation. That whole represents a whole, according to Christ's first premise, that this is from God. That's a whole God wants us to see. Or He wouldn't have given it to us. That's our belief. That's our trust. That's everything our reason confirms. 
So the first is to keep in mind the historical perspective. The second is to always read for the whole, to know that while you're going through it, to be careful of your judgments, or we should be, all of us, because we can so often misread, we don't have the whole in it, in us. It's important to see parts in terms of a whole. <coughs> and the third I've already mentioned is love. If we don't bring love and openness to learn, love means the good of another, it, being open to another, the reader, the writer, whoever's doing this, to be open at Faulkner, Boethius, Shaker, whoever it is. To be open to that person because if we're not, we're not likely to, this, to go to the depths of what that person's offering. If that's true of a work of literature, it's even more true for the Bible. So I'd say keep in mind those principles. And remember how important belief was for Christ because he was rendered powerless. God, stunning. He was rendered powerless by people who didn't believe or didn't love, who weren't humble enough to come to him. Can you imagine any of those people going to Christ without a spirit of humility, of believing he could do something for them? The paralytic, you know, the demoniac, any of them, the centurion, the Samaritans. Okay, there are four, there are, let me, I'm going to, one more minute and then I'll open it up again. There are four Gospels. Three of them are called synoptic because they, they're, they run off the same plot. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in, in the sense that they present the same plot. The understanding is that Matthew and Luke followed Mark, that Mark's was written first. Um, it's, it's, it's believed now that most of them were written between I don't know the years 40, 50 to 90 BC after Christ. That's why so many biblical scholars claim now that they're anonymous, that they weren't written in fact by those men. Um, but there are the three synoptical Gospels and the Gospel of John. We're going to do one of the synoptics and John because there's such a contract. The three synoptics give um, largely a, um, a chronological story, a running account of what Christ happened, what happened with Christ. John's doing something different. John's, John brings a whole sense of the Logos, a whole theological, metaphysical point of view to what happened, and he, he describes everything in metaphysical or theological terms. So in one sense, he is the first theologian He's, ex, he's um, interpreting, he's not presenting an account. He's presenting it and interpreting it and explaining it as he goes. So we can say John and Paul are really the first theologians of the church. They look at the running account of Christ, what happened, and they're interpreting it and making sense of it in theological terms, terms we can understand. So they're actually given an account. That's obviously important if you look at the history of the church because what so often happens is people come along and make claims about Christ. It goes to, who's Tracy's question? How do you know what to believe? Some people said Christ was all human. Some people said he was the father in another mode. You know, there were all sorts of heresies. 
It was absolutely essential that the church establish an authority because the danger was to make scripture whatever anybody wanted. It was, I think, I think it was about the year, I mean, there's, there's dispute about this, but roughly in the fourth century, around somewhere between 375 and 400 at various councils, the church established the canon of the Bible. And I think it wasn't finalized until a long time after that when Revelation was included in that, that original groupings of the Bible. <coughs> so that's just some general observations to make about the Bible before we begin. What I'd like to do in a minute... Um, um, I've got five minutes, but l let me stop here. I, I want to. I'm going to read the opening passages of four of the gospels and gospels, and then leave you with these, and then begin next week with Matthew. But any questions or comments on on any of the comments that I've made so far? It was Athanasius who pulled together the canon. Just Saint Athanasius is the one who did it. So I think it was a council in. It was a consensus of a large of people. It's not just that. It was a large body of... Athanasius was a great, great... His work on the Incarnation, by the way, is one of the greatest works of the Church, if any. It's just a very short work, but it's it's an amazing little book. <clears throat> Quickly, I'm going to do this then. Here's the question that I want to begin with next week. I'm, we'll start with Matthew, but I want to read... The beginning. We've got four different Gospels. Each of them, in a sense, is um, a testimony, a witnessing to Christ, if I can put it that way. It's a testimony. In one sense, they're attempting to validate Christ by writing it down, to prove who he was. Because, as you can imagine, Christ kept saying, Tell nobody. He'd heal somebody and say, Go out, tell nobody. Because he knew what people would do. It didn't help because they'd go out and tell everybody. But he kept saying, because imagine what, what the response would be of millions of people who suddenly heard that there's this miracle worker, that this person could do this or one thing or another, or he's this or that. So there was a, a great need to get down who this figure was. And there was behind it a, a, a long tradition. The Jewish tradition was well established. The, the tradition of the early church was already established. They were already doing things long before the Gospels were written. So the tradition preceded the Gospels. For the Protestant to turn that around and make the Gospels more important, the tradition is, is a little bit ironic. The tradition was already established and growing and taking a new turn with Christ, but it was there in the early church. So here's the question that I've got. Each of the four Gospels is different. They're attempting to do something. Each one of them does something the other doesn't. It's why modern scholars look at the Bible skeptically and say, you can't believe it. These people are contradicting each other. And by the way, I meant to say this earlier. Let me say it now. An accident takes place in an intersection. You've got people on four corners looking at it. Does the fact that those reports may be inconsistent in some detail 
and maybe even contradict each other mean that the accident didn't take place? Are you all following? The fact that scholars say these inconsistencies mean we can't believe it is a little bit like saying you've got four different reports of an accident and they're inconsistent so there was no accident. There's a tremendous amount of consistency. Something did take place and we can't I would just say be careful of the inconsistencies and contradictions because they in themselves don't disprove that this thing took place. Okay? Here's the beginning of Mark. My question is, what's the basis of authority for each of the Gospels? This is Mark. Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face who shall prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared. The beginning of Mark is the appearance of John and the use of a prophecy. So it's already connecting a gospel with an Old Testament reading and the history of the Jewish people. Is that clear? He begins with a prophecy and he begins with John. So an event is given a prophetic cast because it's related to a prophet saying something would happen. Was Isaiah. That's the beginning of Mark. Luke begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly, account, an, orderly, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Because everybody seems to be saying so many things about what took place, I'm going to give you the straight scoop. I want to make clear that nobody's confused about this because everybody's getting different reports. That's the beginning of Luke. And Luke comes well after Christ's life. I think the understanding is he got much of what he says from Paul. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Erbajah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he begins with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what takes place in the temple once again, an event is rooted in the past, but it starts with um, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Okay? Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. An angel appears to him, and fear fell upon him. Was that servile? Filial fear. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy. So it begins with a vision, a vision, wait, begins with Luke saying, there are all these accounts, I want to set them straight. He starts with Zechariah's vision and the birth of John. So it's beginning once again with John. Here's John. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. That's John. He's starting with himself. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness. He claims he was sent by God to bear witness um, to this light that came into the world. Okay. Was that John the Baptist or John the disciple? That's John. Who, which John are we referring to? Which John is being referred to here? Oh, wait. Wow, good question. It's John the disciple who's writing, not John the Baptist. I know. Yeah. It shouldn't be John the Baptist. It should be John the guy writing this. Yeah. I'm assuming that, but... Okay, can we stop here? Can everybody... Um, I, I, I'm hesitating because we're past time. I'd like to read Matthew, but I, I think because we're past time, I'm going to wait. We've got three very different beginnings and three different sources of authority. Each one of them is doing something different. Each one of them is seeing something different. But collectively, they're all a witnessing to Christ. They're presenting Christ as He is um, because it's important that we see Him according to God for our salvation. The Gospels, the, the Bible is written for our salvation. It's directly from God. These are the Gospels. Okay, they look back to the Jewish past. They root themselves in Jewish history. Um, um, three of them begin with prophecies. John begins by saying he was sent by God. What's the? I'm going to begin with this question. What's the different ground of authority for each of those Gospels, and we'll start with Matthew next week. Any questions or comments? Or this is the beginning of our work. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I thought you said at the beginning of class this would be our last meeting for this year. It right, it is. Oh, sorry, did I say next week's next yeah. next meeting? Okay. We're meeting the first week of January. Okay. Got it. Thanks. I just feel so bad for you guys trying to correct all my mistakes and get through to any sense in what I say. Tracy, what? No? Listen, bless your souls, all of you. Um, it's been a wonderful year. It's, I'm glad that we've had this time together. I'm genuinely, deeply glad that we can do this. It is such a gift to me, such a gift. Um, you all have a blessed Christmas, and... Have a safe and good new year. Particularly have a safe new year. Be safe so we can meet again first week of January, okay? Okay? Merry Christmas, everyone. Good night. Merry Christmas. Thank you all. Thank you all. Night. Night. Happy up. Thanks. Good night. Thanks.